ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. This is the Acts of the Apostles. For more information, go to carolinesprings.church. We are going to be, as Albert says, continue our journey in the book of Acts. If I haven't met you, my name's John. I'm the lead pastor here at this church. Uh, our other pastor, Jimmy, and his wife, Sarah, are away this week, uh, taking a well-earned break. Um, so you can be praying for them that they would have a refreshing time away. But we're here to work this morning. So we're going to be working through uh, the passage that was read to us in, uh, in passing. But I'm going to be skipping around a little bit from Acts 21 and 22 and... And then into 23. So it'd be good for you to keep your Bibles open to that passage. And um, if you don't own a Bible, make sure you take that one with you. That's our gift to you this morning. And if you're a regular member here, let me just say, if, um, if you want to contribute to our Bible uh, gift fund, we would love you to do that because um, we take great joy and pleasure in being able to give away Bibles. But obviously it does uh, cost us to do so. No one's going to give them to us for free. So um, some of you have really enjoyed being able to contribute to that because you, like us, um, love being able to give Bibles away. And at this point, we've given more than half of the Bibles that we've bought away to people for free, um, which is a great, great privilege that we have. Um, I'm going to the uh, hospital visit later this afternoon and, and I've been asked to take four or five Bibles to give away there to help uh, the person in hospital witness to those around them. So, I mean, that's just something that we love to do, um, but uh, it does take its toll on our budget. So if you've got some uh, cash lying around that you'd love to buy some Bibles with, let us know. The best way to do it is just to fill out a Connect card on your way out and uh, just make a note that you want to give and we'll get in touch with you during the week, all right? So with that being said, take those Bibles um, up in your hands and uh, keep a thumb in Acts 22 and uh, then I'm going to pray for us and we'll dive into it. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that we have your word, your word in abundance. Lord God, people have died in order to get this Bible translated into our language and into our hands and we so often um, neglect to read it. We so often neglect to be thankful for it. So we correct that this morning. We thank you. We praise you that we have your words written to us. And we trust them. We submit to them. We ask that you would make them clear to us this morning as we gather as your people. Lord, make this a means of grace to encourage us and strengthen our faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, just like a, an action movie where the opening sequence begins with explosions and, and all kinds of action, uh, we're going to drop right into the middle of the action here this morning, all right? So in uh, Acts 21, verse 30 to 31, it says this. You can follow on the screen if you prefer that to the, to the page. It says this. The whole city was aroused. And the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. So let's put some little bit of context around this. Paul has 
um, completed his missionary journey. He's back in Jerusalem now, but he hasn't come back for a a cozy, cushy uh, holiday. He has run straight back into the from the frying pan into the fire. The whole city is in an uproar. The whole city is aroused, and the whole city is baying for his blood. Flashbacks to Easter. Similar scenes as the crowd bays for Jesus' blood. Crucify him, crucify him. It's that kind of scene. It's dramatic. It's bloodthirsty. And Paul's life is very much on the line. So how did we get here? How did we get to this opening scene? Well, like in the movie, we're going to do a bit of a flashback. And we're going to see how, how this came about. So if you back up to um, chapter 21, uh, verse 27, we read this. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him. So the men who are responsible for this situation, for Paul's life being in danger, are these Asian Jews. And when I read that this past week, I kind of giggled because I imagined like a, like a an Asian-looking person, but with a beard and a yarmulke, and that's a, that's a funny image, right? An Asian Jew. That's not, that's not what's going on here. These are Asian Jews from a- the area of Asia Minor, which in the first century was Turkey, um, where Paul has come from, Ephesus. It's between the Middle East and Europe. It's that little bridge between the two. And so when we're talking about Asian Jews, we're not talking about our friends from Korea who are visiting here this morning. We're talking about Turks. We're talking about people from that region of the world. So Asia Minor, and they have, uh, they have arrived in Jerusalem. They've traveled, it seems, for the express purpose of getting Paul into trouble, of riling the Jews up against him. And it, and it hasn't come out of nowhere. They haven't just popped up out of nowhere. These are men probably who have been pursuing him for three years now. These guys are intent on stopping Paul's gospel ministry. And they've got to the climax now. They've got him. If you back up again, you're going to see three years before, he's uh, in Asia where these men are from. And in uh, chapter 20, verse 17 to 19, it says this, uh, Luke reporting on their, um, their arrival... Uh, beg your pardon, backing up again. All right, uh, their arrival from Miletus to Ephesus. So, chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first time I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. These are those same men. In Asia, these Jewish opponents have been opposing him, opposing his message, and he's saying, in the midst of this great opposition, I've maintained my integrity. We're going to finish on this point in chapter 23, verse 1, at the end of this sermon, but he has been able to maintain his integrity, his gospel integrity, maintain the purity of his message in the midst of this great opposition, and here for the last three years, it's been growing and growing as these men have pursued him, finally, like a scene out of, what was that movie? The Fugitive. That's a good movie. 
my dad tells me about the TV series way back in the day. Some of you remember that, right? The Harrison Ford movie, like he's being pursued and pursued and pursued by Tommy Lee Jones and finally the climax comes and he's got him. Same here, three years kind of on the run as it were and finally these Jews from the region, the province of Asia have got him. And they're riling up this crowd, baying for his blood, screaming for the others to join them, their brothers, their Jewish brothers, to join them in securing Paul's life. It even says, as they were trying to kill him. And the way that they're trying to secure the support of their fellow Jews to take Paul's life from him, is by making two accusations. Two accusations. So the first accusation that they make is that Paul is opposed to the people of Israel, to the law of Israel, and to the temple of Israel, the three big hitters, all right? So check it out. This is in verse 27 to 28. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people, against our law, and against this place. This is like a red rag to a bull for the Jews in Jerusalem. This is the one. Believe us, we've seen him for three years now. We, we know what he's up to. He teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people, against our law, against this place, the temple. So against our people, this is, this is our very identity. God chose us. Out of everyone on earth, he chose us, the Jews, to be his people. And this man is preaching against us, against our law, the very words of God. God's words to us that shape our identity and our culture and our religious observance against our people, against our law, and against this place, this temple, the very house of God, the dwelling place of God, the most holy place in the universe. All this guy does is go everywhere and teach everyone against these three things that matter more to us than anything else. It's like a red rag to a bull. They've done very well. The response that the whole city is in an uproar is no exaggeration. It's exactly the kind of response we would expect to see when someone is accused of this. The question is, is the accusation true? It turns out that when you're trying to rile up a crowd and you're trying to get people opposed to someone, it doesn't really matter if what you say is true, I think all of us have seen that or experienced that to some degree. But it does matter to us whether it is true because the accusations they're making are actually quite serious. And so the question is, is it true? The answer is emphatically, no, it's not true. In fact, I mean, if you've been with us through the book of Acts, you'll see clearly that what these guys are saying about Paul isn't true. But even if you just read the preceding paragraph, you'll see that what they're saying is not true about Paul. If you read chapter 21, verse 17 to 24, it says this, 
When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, Jesus' own brother, converted to the faith after Jesus' resurrection. And all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. They said, then they said to Paul, and this is the issue, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. All right. So this is the the wisdom of the church in Jerusalem is, you know, saying to Paul, listen, there are these rumors about you that are manifested in these accusations that come later. Rumors about you. Just do this. It'll show everyone that the, the rumors are unfounded. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Paul at this point, I'm just going to say, no. Screw you guys, right? I have gone from town to town, risking my life to preach the gospel, which is a gospel of freedom from religious law and observance and rituals and rites. God relates to us on the basis of covenant. And this is a covenant of grace. The law can't save us. So no, I'm going to exercise my Christian freedom here. That's what I would say. And I I can imagine Paul saying something like that. He's a pretty gnarly dude, right? But what does he do? He submits to what they recommend that he does. Verse 26, the next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. He fulfills every letter of the law. And it's then, verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over. Not one week later, after he's gone through this for the sake of his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, that the crowd is baying for his blood. It's so unfair. It's so unfounded. But that's the kind of character Paul is. Remember in Corinthians he says, I've become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel so that I might save some. That's why he's going through this rigmarole, not because he has to, but because out of love he wants to reach people who, for whom this is a big deal. And those same people who he loves and wants to pour out his life for in service to, they are now baying for his blood. So no, first accusation in three parts, unfounded. What about the next one? The second part of verse 28 says this. And besides, they say, yelling, screaming at the crowd, besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Which to us, you know, Big deal, right? He brought Greeks into the temple. Like, isn't that a bit racist? Isn't it like, is this apartheid? Water fountains for whites and water fountains for coloreds? Is that, well, yeah, actually, that's exactly what it is. 
it's the strongest form of apartheid. The people of Israel had divided their temple up very deliberately. There was a place where you could go if you were a Greek, and there was a place where if you went in as a Greek, you would be killed. There have been rumours that this was true from the, the history that we can read, but only quite recently in the 1800s did they make an archaeological discovery as they're uh, digging up the, the temple. They found an inscription, a warning to Gentiles, and we've got a picture of it um, discovered in the 1800s. This is a, an inscription on stone, and it's in Greek, and the translation roughly is, no stranger, that is another way of saying Gentile, is to enter within this balustrade or, or wall or barricade round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which will ensue. Right? Saying, don't blame us. Your death is going to follow quickly and it's your fault. Alright? So, so no recourse, no appeals court, just you'll die if we find you in this place. And it's a brilliant, it makes even more brilliant Paul's words in Ephesians. You know where he says, the gospel has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between Greek and Jew. That's the wall he's talking about. It was a five-foot wall, five-foot balustrade around the temple, dividing the court where you could be a, a Greek and where you had to be a Jew. Paul says that wall is destroyed by the gospel. But at this point, in the early years of the Christian church, in the early years of, of uh, sort of 25, 30 years since Jesus' death, the balustrade is very much still there, and these guys are incensed that Paul has taken Trophimus, a Jew, an Ephesian, and brought him into the temple. He said, yep, just jump the barricade, no probs. The question again is, is it true? Luke is very, very gracious when he explains the situation. Verse 29, he says this. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Right, very gracious. He's not saying they're just making this up in order to falsely accuse Paul, which they might be doing, by the way. He wants to see the best in them and he says, look, I think there's just a confusion here. They saw Trophimus with Paul in the city, and then they've connected two very, very disparate dots, drawn a very long bow, and said, yeah, by the way, Paul took him into the, into the temple. No one asked them, do we have any eyewitnesses? To which they would reply, well, no, but we saw them together, so. Ah, kill him. Right, so both accusations are very serious. We might say, who cares if someone jumped the balustrade, right? Kids run up onto this stage all, all the time. But in this day, it was actually a very serious accusation. And Trophimus's life is on the line along with Paul's. So the result, clearly because these accusations are so serious, is in verse 30, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple. Immediately the gates were shut while they were trying to kill him. News reached the commander of the Roman troops, etc. Very serious. Whole city aroused. 
What I want to say this morning, and this is kind of drawing this situation out into our own context, by, by way of a bit of a parenthesis, but this is what I kind of felt pressing on me as I was reading this this past week. This whole city in uproar, this whole city arranged against the message that Paul was preaching, the gospel of God's grace, liberty and freedom for all people on the basis of Jesus' death, burial and resurrection. That message which caused the city to be an uproar in the first century is the same message which is causing the city of Melbourne to be up in uproar today. And this is, this is super important for us to understand because some of us still remember the days of the, the, the dying days of Christendom where everyone was going to Bible study and, and Sunday school and, and, and broadly speaking we called our culture a Christian one. Those days are over, my friends. Those days are over. And while there are Christians around the world who are in, literally in danger of being dragged out and beaten and tortured and killed, the days that we have ahead of us are, are much more likely to be days characterized by ostracism from the culture around us, rejection of our uh, worldview, carte blanche, the, the, everything that we believe rejected by the prevailing culture. And you can see this very clearly, the temperature of the the public discourse when it comes to what Christians believe is rising and the level of hostility towards a biblical worldview is increasing. Am I right? Like, are you seeing this? Are you watching how people are treated on Q&A when they espouse some kind of belief in the Bible, when they espouse some kind of Christian worldview? Have you been on social media recently? That's a scary place to be. And what I want to say is that, honestly, and, and I'm, I'm so not one for kind of giving the apocalyptic message and saying, you know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket and we've just got to dig some bunkers and, and go underground. Like, I just, I don't believe that at all. And I'm supremely confident that God is going to, as he promised he would, continue to build his church and that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. I'm a very optimistic person when it comes to God's um, ability to protect and preserve his elect on the earth. However, we need to know that being a Christian is not going to be as easy as it was in the past, for, for the past several generations. And that to be a Bible-believing Christian is going to be one of the hardest things you can be. Here's the thing. The way I see it, the culture sees two types of Christians, right? One is the Bible-believing Christian. One is the kind of Christian who could take or leave the Bible. That Christian is okay with the prevailing culture, right? Because they don't actually stand for anything and they don't, um, they don't believe in anything that's any different to the culture around them. They have, um, they have adopted and assimilated into the prevailing culture. But the person who says, I believe that Scripture is the very Word of God... And that I believe that my life is given to me to make all of life all about Jesus, that person is becoming a lot more unpopular in the prevailing culture from day to day. Now, listen, this affects us in some way, but just take a look at these kids, right? Think about where they're going to be living in 20 to 30 years' time. Think about whether you really want to 
do as we are encouraging you to do, which is to be the primary disciples of them, to be spending each and every day training them to make all of life all about Jesus. What you're doing, if you choose to do that, is that you are shaping them to have a more uncomfortable life than they otherwise would have. So you need to be very deliberate about this. You need to have your eyes open to this. Every day that I read my Jesus Storybook Bible with my kids and I encourage them to pray, and I pray for them, and I try and shape their whole worldview around what God says in his word, I am very deliberately making their life harder for them in the future. Which is why it's so important for us to recognize that comfort isn't the highest calling of the Christian. It never has been. I think Paul would be in this situation if that was the case. If your health, wealth, and prosperity was God's highest concern. So things are going to get more uncomfortable for us. And my response to that, and my my hope for us, is not that we just dive underground, or that we become vitriolic, or that we become agitated, or that we become, um, in any sense, like feeling like we need to defend ourselves. Rather, I think with our eyes open, we need to go into the midst of that culture, as Paul and the apostles did, and out of great love for those who oppose us, share the good news of the gospel with them. Now, here's the thing. I reckon Paul gives us an example of how to do that in the passage that Albert read for us. So I want you just to, everyone, just to tune in here because everyone's losing their focus, all right? This is so important. If we are going to do our, if we're going to be part of our mission, if we're going to see our mission come to fruition, to be people helping people make all of life all about Jesus, if you want to help people do that, this is one of the things you need to know, all right? So stay with me. We're nearly done here, but this is a really important point. Look how Paul responds to the hostility and, by the way, the unfounded hostility, the false accusations leveled at him. He responds in this way. Let me set the context for it. Verse 33 says this, The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked him who he was and what he had done. That's the Pax Romana at work, all right? That's how the Romans do things. Arrest you, chain you up, then ask who you are and what you're up to, all right? That's how they roll. That's how they ruled the world for as long as they did, all right? So arrest, chained, then ask questions. Verse 30, uh, 30, where am I up to? 37 and 39, this is what Paul says. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? <laughs> what? <laughs> no, that's not, I'm not Egyptian. That might be Matthew, but it's, it's, it's not Paul. I'm not suggesting you're a terrorist, Matthew. I love you. He's an Egyptian, right? Paul's a Jew. He's not an Egyptian. He's not leading 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness. No, like, I love how he responds. Very cool, very calm. He's like, shut up. What are you talking about? That's, no. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. And so in the face of this 
agitation, this vitriol, this violence, he responds very calmly, very coolly. I love the way that God is using the Romans who have been opposed in different ways to Christianity since its beginning, the Romans, to save Paul from the mob that's about to kill him. It's just the sovereignty of God is just amazing. The Romans come and and save him from being lynched in the streets, and now the Romans are going to give him a platform to speak to the people. And it's what he says that what I want to get at and leave us with this morning. How should we respond when we're faced with a a growing sense in the culture around us that we are not welcome, that our views are not welcome, that Bible-believing Christianity is to be opposed. It's, so, it's the most ironic thing in the world is that the people around us, on the basis of their prizing of tolerance, are rejecting the views of Christians who believe in a biblical worldview. Just think about that. The, the irony is rich. On the basis of tolerance, we reject what you say. This is how Paul responds in that same situation. Verse 1 of 22. He said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. You've heard that before. Where have you heard that before? You heard it in Acts 7. You heard it from the lips of Stephen. That's how he began his defense right before he's killed. What he says to the men standing around him or holding stones that are going to be flung at him until he's dead is brothers and fathers. That's how he addresses them. Who's there overseeing his execution? Saul, now named Paul. How much did that impact him at the time? The posture of Stephen standing before him in humility to the people who are about to kill him, addressing them as brothers and fathers. Paul thinks he's about to die. And he wants to go down in the same way that Stephen did, even as he oversaw his execution. That gives me chills. I don't know about you, that gives me chills. Verse 2, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. He's about to share with them his testimony. We saw it um, played out in Acts chapter 9. We're going to see it again in Acts 26. So we're not going to go into detail here, but this is the story of how God completely invaded Paul's or Saul's heart and converted him from persecutor of Christians to missionary for Christians, right? Completely in spite of who he was and what he'd done. And the way that Paul tells them his story is in Aramaic, and that's an important point. Notice, these are the crowds that are screaming for his blood. Kill him! We want his blood shed. And when he speaks to them in Aramaic, they become very quiet. Why? Aramaic is the the language of the street. Aramaic is the vernacular. They hear him speaking to them in their language. Remember he did this in Athens when he spoke to the pagans there. He quoted their poets. Here, again, diplomacy speaking to them in their language. And he tells them his story in their language. They become very quiet. That's what I want us to notice. In the face of a culture that rejects what we believe, what we espouse, the way to interact with them, I believe, is to speak their language and to share 
your story. Speak their language, share your story. I doubt whether most of the people you interact with who are antagonistic toward your Bible-believing Christian faith, I doubt whether the best starting point to interact with them is on the basis of debate or argument, apologetics as we know them. I doubt whether that's true. There is a place for those things, and I really enjoy getting into all of that. I live in the world of ideas. I love debate. I love arguing. I love all of that. But I doubt whether the best starting point in my interactions with those around me who I love but who reject what I believe, I I doubt whether that's the best starting place. I think the best starting place is for me to speak their language and to share my story. It's interesting that Paul says, hear my defense, the word for the defense defense is apologia, that's where we get the idea of apologetics, but his apologetics are his story. It's not an abstract list of ideas or theology or philosophy or arguments, it's his story, the way that God has been active in his life. Do you get that? I got that this week and I was like, oh, it set me on my back for about three hours, um, I, I hope this is making sense, right? The way that we interact with people who hate us, and maybe, maybe this isn't applying because you're, you just don't want to interact with people who hate you, in which case you're being disobedient. So, if you want to be obedient to the call that God has on your life, to be ordinary people, empowered by the Spirit, to witness to the Lord Jesus, then get this as an example. He speaks to them in their language, he shares with them his story, his testimony. And he goes through it and he says the way that God interrupted and erupted into his life. The way that Jesus himself called him out of a life of persecuting Christians to become one of the greatest missionaries who's ever lived. And he shares that with them. And we get to the point where we wait for all of them to fall on their faces and weeping and repentance and and espousing new belief in the Lord Jesus and it never comes. Here's another thing we need to understand. There is no silver bullet that you can fire into the heart of someone who's antagonistic towards the gospel that will change their hearts. Only the Spirit can do that. And the wind blows where it wills, Jesus says. So what happens? Paul does this. He does it with integrity. He does it with love. He speaks to them in their language. He quietens the crowd. He shares with them the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus in his life. He gives them personal examples of how he was the greatest opposer and hunter of Christians and how God's grace has been at work in his own heart to make him a lover of Christians and a servant of Christians. And then in verse 22, let's get their response The climax, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he is not fit to live. Man, how much of a contemporary social media response is that? That is such a Facebook comment response, right? He shares with them his life and his testimony and what he believes. Get rid of him. He's not fit to live. That's the kind of world that we're living in now. That's the kind of level of interaction we have. And it's probably not what people will say in person, but it's certainly what they'll say to you online 
in response to a clear and concise and even loving and humble recitation of what you believe. Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. This confuses the Roman guard. The governor doesn't know exactly what to do with him. He's just confused about why these people hate him so much. He doesn't understand that this is what the gospel does. It often invites vitriol and hate as people's idolatry is, is uh, confronted. And so he doesn't know exactly what to do with him. He decides, well, what we should do is just maybe we'll take him away from the crowd who are wanting to kill him. We'll flog him, doing that Roman thing again. We'll flog him to interrogate him and find out what what has he really done. So he's not that Egyptian guy. He must be some other kind of terrorist. He must be some other kind of, you know, evil person for these people who want to kill him so much. And so they attempt to do that. He turns around and says, listen, do you guys know I'm a Roman citizen? Then they put the flagellum down and back away slowly because it's illegal to whip a Roman um, and the governor's like, how, how did this happen? How are you a Roman? I had to pay lots of money for my Roman citizenship. Paul says, I was born one, um, saves himself from that ignominy and pain, but he just goes on to the next trial. They bring him before the Sanhedrin and this is the last verse I want to look at. Before the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish police Chapter 23, verse 1, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Paul's example for us, as we, as we gather up the threads of this, how we should respond to a culture that is growing in hostility towards what we believe, his example is to speak to people in the vernacular, speak to them in their language, know them enough, love them enough, be with them and around them enough that you know how to speak their language, then share your story, how God has been at work in your life, people value stories, advertising can tell you just about everything you need to know about culture, why is it that most ads are someone pretending to be a mum or a doctor or a vet or a dentist telling me that I should really buy this thing because people value personal experience, even when it's completely contrived. It sells. So speak to them in their language. Tell them your experience. Tell them your story, your Jesus story of God's grace in your life and do it in complete and utter integrity. I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Can we say that? Can we say that about the opportunities that God has given us to share our story? Or have we shied away? Have we preferred comfort to bearing witness? In that case, let's ask God for courage and confidence, just as Paul asked God for Timothy, that he would no longer be timid, but full of courage. Just as he asked the church to pray for himself, that he would be bold, a bold witness. Let's pray that God would empower us by his spirit to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus and to do it with all integrity and a clear conscience. I'd like to pray that we follow in Paul's example, not because he is a super Christian, but because like us. He was an ordinary person, 
an ordinary man, empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus, even in the midst of great opposition. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we don't want to over-dramatise or overestimate the situation that we find ourselves in Melbourne in 2016. And not many of us will ever have our lives threatened or our well-being threatened because of our faith, but many of us are and will have family members who reject us, just as you told us they would. Many of us are and have been ostracised in our workplace or our school. Some of us have faced some kind of physical violence because of the beliefs that we hold. And yet we hold them because we can't deny them. Your grace in our life has been so emphatic that we can't turn away from them. So, Father, I pray that in in this culture that we would stand firm, that we would so love the people around us that we would learn from them, that we would study them, that we would know them so that we can speak to them in their language, so that we can share with them the grace that you have displayed in our lives, that you've poured out on us, that we would continually point to you as the giver of life and love. We pray for our kids. Lord, the more that we disciple them, the more uncomfortable we're going to make their lives in the future. That much is clear. But we do it in faith. We do it in faith knowing that for all time Christians have been opposed and for all time you have preserved them and you have built your church. And Father, we pray for those uh, involved in the collision out the front of our church. Another one, Lord. Another one, Lord. Father, we pray uh, for them that they would be in good condition. If someone wants to go out and help them now, please do so. We know that our life on this earth, uh, in, in our life on this earth, we have no guarantees of longevity, Lord. Any day now you might call us home. So in that context, make us bold. Give us an overflowing love for those around us. And help us to live in such a way that our conscience is clear as we fulfill your will. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.